Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, a familiar passage. Now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. My wife has always put a high priority on birthdays. She made sure that birthdays in our family was a big deal. When the kids were young, we threw seven birthday parties a year. We were always either planning a party or recovering from one. There was never a dull moment. But the most important birthday party of the year was held on December the 25th. The Adams family celebrated Jesus' birthday. And I mean, my wife would go all out. On Christmas morning, we'd have a birthday cake with candles, no less. I mean, a real birthday party. We wanted our kids to understand that Christmas is first and foremost the celebration of the birthday of our Lord Jesus. Christmas is a birthday party. Messiah was born, laid in a manger, And we celebrate his birth. But unlike your birthday or my birthday, Jesus' birthday was not his beginning. He existed long before his incarnation. Rewind the time counter all the way back to zero, zero, zero. And there you'll find Jesus. Fast forward to the end of time. And again, there you'll find Jesus. Jesus is from forever past, and he will be forever future. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, God declares that out of the city of Bethlehem shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. That Hebrew word translated everlasting, it can be referred to as beyond the vanishing point. Or as Buzz Lightyear would say, to infinity and beyond. It speaks of that point in time when time as we know it fades into eternity. Micah is saying, go as far back as your mind can imagine. Go as far forward as your mind can imagine. And there you'll find the Messiah In Isaiah 9, verse 6, the prophet refers to Jesus as the everlasting Father. Jesus had no beginning, and he has no end, which presents a problem when you throw a birthday party. How many candles do you put on the cake? Trust me, (laughs) if they haven't already, your kids will eventually ask you the question, how old is Jesus? To which my wife always gave the insightful answer, ask your dad. (laughs) 
And here's what I learned to say whenever the kids ask me, how old is Jesus? He is forever young and he is forever old. He touches eternity in both directions. Jesus is eternal and timeless and transcendent. Yet he is fresh and alive and contemporary to every generation. Revelation calls him the Alpha and the Omega. That is the A to the Z, the first and the last. Jesus is the God who was and who is and who is to come. His stride spans the history of the universe. One foot sets on the threshold of time. The other foot sits at its back door. Now when my grandkids ask, how old is Jesus? I tell them, he is forever old and he is forever young. In his book, God Came Near, author Max Licato, he has a chapter entitled, 25 Questions for Mary. He lists a series of questions that he'd like to ask the mother of Jesus. Here's a sampling. When Jesus saw a rainbow, did he ever mention a flood? Did you ever feel awkward teaching him how he created the world? When he saw a lamb being led to the slaughter, did he act differently? Did you ever see him with a distant look on his face? As if you were listening to someone you couldn't hear? How did he act at funerals? Did the thought ever occur to you that the God to whom you were praying was asleep under your own roof? Did you ever catch him looking at the flesh on his arm while holding some dirt in his hand? And here's a final one. Did you ever think, that's God eating my soup? Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he had been there before. Bethlehem was not his beginning. One author writes, this baby had overlooked the universe. These rags keeping him warm were the robes of eternity. Mary touches the face of the infant God. How long was your journey? How long indeed? In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he says this of Jesus. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created for Him and through Him. When God hung the stars, there was Jesus. Think of it. The star that led the wise men to the house of Joseph and Mary was created by the child that they came to visit. It's mind-boggling, but the carpenter from Nazareth was the architect of the universe. When you study the Old Testament history, it's startling to realize just how involved Jesus was, not only in creation, but in many of God's dealings with his people. The second person of the Trinity appears frequently. He's never actually called Jesus, yet his identity is unmistakable. We call these Old Testament sightings pre-incarnate or pre-in-the-flesh appearances of Jesus. Take, for example, Genesis chapter 18. Abraham and Sarah, they were entertaining some visitors. Sarah was in the kitchen. She was preparing a meal when she overheard one of her mysterious guests tell her husband 
that his 90-year-old wife would soon conceive a child. Well, Sarah couldn't help it. She just laughed. She chuckled. She might have belly laughed. But that's when we read the Lord, literally Yahweh, the Hebrews' unique name for the Almighty. Yahweh said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Surely shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Apparently, one of their guests was God incognito, the Almighty disguised as a man. Who else could that be but Jesus? In Genesis 22, Abraham is on the verge of sacrificing his only son Isaac. He's on the mountain where God will later sacrifice his only son Jesus. It's a foreshadowing of Calvary's cross. But in Genesis, we're told the angel of the Lord ordered Abraham to stop. He said, stay your hand. In Hebrew, the word angel, it means messenger. It refers to both heavenly or human messengers. I believe in many of the Old Testament cases where the angel of the Lord is mentioned, it's none other than Jesus. On Mount Moriah, it's possible that it was our Savior with Abraham. Jesus stopped the sacrifice of Isaac knowing that one day he would be sacrificed in Isaac's place. John 8 tells us of a conversation that Jesus had with the Pharisees. He shocked them by saying, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Jesus states that Abraham, who lived 200 years beforehand, had seen his day. Father Abraham had actually hung out with Jesus of Nazareth. How could that be? Of course, the Pharisees, they laughed at such a thought. They mocked Jesus. Are you not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus answered, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And Jesus deliberately uses the name God coined for himself at the burning bush. I am who I am. Moses was to say to Pharaoh, I am has sent me. The Jews considered this name, I am, to be sacred. God is self-existent. He is the eternal one. This is why the Jews who heard Jesus say it picked up rocks to stone him. The Pharisees knew that by claiming to be I am, Jesus was saying that he was God. Speaking of the burning bush, at first glance we assume that it was the Father who spoke from the bush. But not so. Jesus makes an unexpected appearance. Read carefully Exodus chapter 3 verses 2 through 6. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now pay attention to the details here. And you're forced to draw an interesting conclusion. Verse 2 makes it clear that the voice from within the bush was that of the angel of the Lord. Yet the angel identifies himself as Yahweh. The angel of the Lord is actually God. Hey, this can be none other than Jesus. It's a fascinating thought that before Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, he appeared on Sinai and shook a mountain. And this is where the Old Testament really gets exciting. When you realize that our Lord Jesus is involved throughout, many of the old stories take on a new twist. For example, a close inspection of Exodus 14 tells us that it was the angel of God who led the Hebrews out of Egypt, who destroyed the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Later in Acts chapter 7, in Stephen's history of Israel, he confirms that the same angel Moses saw in the fiery bush was the one who bushwhacked the Egyptians. It was actually Jesus who executed the exodus. Stephen also tells us that it was the angel of the Lord who gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Imagine how ridiculous then it was for the Jews to argue with Jesus over the meaning of the law with its author. Who were they to criticize his interpretations? They were arguing the law with the lawgiver. And despite what that old spiritual says, it was not Joshua who fought the battle of Jericho. It was Jesus. Read Joshua chapter 5. The night before the battle, Joshua couldn't sleep. So he went for a walk there on the riverbank. There he saw a man in the shadows. And like any good sentinel, Joshua confronted him. Friend or foe? The unexpected soldier replies, As commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place you, where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now who was this person who pulls rank on Joshua? It can't be an ordinary angel. Joshua fell on his face before him and worshipped him. Nowhere in Scripture does an ordinary angel of God allow himself to be worshipped. Only God himself is willing to receive worship. Notice also the commander here gives Joshua the same instructions Moses received on Mount Sinai. Take off your sandals. The place where you stand is holy. It's obvious here that the commander who won the battle of Jericho was the same voice who spoke from the burning bush. They both were pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus. Realize Long before Jesus visited Jericho and called that little man Zacchaeus down from the sycamore tree, he had seen the city's walls come a-tumbling down. And there are many other examples of Jesus' pre-incarnate appearances. He appeared to Hagar and made a promise to her son Ishmael. He wrestled with Jacob and pinned him with a blessing. He commissioned Gideon to fight against the Midianites. In fact, it was Jesus, the angel of the Lord, who intercepted Balaam's donkey and prohibited the sorcerer from pronouncing a curse on the nation Israel. It's interesting, a thousand years later, Jesus would ride a donkey into Jerusalem, not to curse the nation, but to bless it. 
In Judges chapter 13, an angel appeared to a man named Manoah and his wife. And he announced to him the birth of his son, Samson. When Manoah asked the angel his name, he replied, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? This is the same name given to Jesus 600 years later. In Isaiah 9 verse 6, Isaiah calls him wonderful, counselor. It's interesting, when the angel left Manoah, the man told his wife, We have seen God. Manoah somehow knew the angel of the Lord and God were one and the same. It was another pre-incarnate sighting of Israel's Messiah. Perhaps the most amazing pre-birthday work of Jesus occurred just outside the walls of Jerusalem in the year 722 B.C. Samaria had just fallen. It seemed that Jerusalem would be next. It was a crisis moment. The mighty, bloodthirsty Assyrian army had the city surrounded. That's when the Jewish king Hezekiah, he got on his knees and he prayed. He repented and he asked for God's deliverance. And in 2 Kings 19, the scripture records how God answered. It came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. What's interesting is what Isaiah, who happened to be a contemporary king Hezekiah, wrote about this very same battle. For in Isaiah chapter 8, he writes of the Assyrian general. He says, he will pass through Judah. He will overthrow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck. And the stretching out of his wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. And then he writes... Speak the word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. The phrase is literally translated Emmanuel. Isaiah says that the Assyrian army will overflow the land, but Emmanuel will defend Judah. Apparently, Emmanuel is this same angel of the Lord. And Emmanuel is the name that was given by the angel To Joseph, as he contemplated marrying Mary and taking her to be his wife. He was to call the baby Emmanuel, or God with us. Apparently, this Emmanuel who drew his sword to defend Israel, laid down his sword and was laid in a manger. The battle-hardened warrior had become an infant. The avenger who shed the blood of his enemies to save Israel, will shed his own blood to save the world. On our trips to Jerusalem, we always visit the Mount of Olives. We stand in the very place where Jesus wept over Jerusalem. On the Sunday before he was crucified, Jesus looked out over the city and he cried. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets, And stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. It's interesting. Today a church stands in the spot where Jesus shed his tears. The name of the church is Dominus Flevit. Which is Latin for the Lord wept. But what's stunning about this church is its dome. It's built in the shape of a teardrop. 
For it was there on the Mount of Olives that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. That church is today a perpetual reminder of the tears that Jesus shed over his wayward people. For long centuries, Jesus wanted to heal them, but they refused his help. Recall his words. How often I wanted to gather your children. What was in his thoughts when he uttered those words? What ancient images were flashing across the screen of Jesus' mind when he spoke those words? Their grumbling in the wilderness? Their worship of idols? The crushing invasions of Israel's enemies? The rejected warnings of his prophets? Jesus had seen all the history unfold before his box seat in heaven. He was engaged, often personally involved. Over and over, Jesus longed to intervene on Israel's behalf. But his people were not willing. You see, here's my big point. Bethlehem was not the Messiah's beginning. Mary's newborn was not a novice. Jesus came to the manger by way of majesty. Jesus greeted the dawning of time. Jesus poured the footings of the universe. Jesus molded man out of mud. Here was the one who set the course of nations, who caused kings to rise and kingdoms to crumble. Jesus was the mighty warrior, the everlasting father, the eternal king, the self-existent one, the commander-in-chief of the Lord's army, the great I am, the lawgiver, the ruler of all creation, and much, much more. Jesus is the one who engineered every turn in God's dealings with his people. More than being privy to divine plans, Jesus possessed divinity himself. Jesus shared glory with the God who shares his glory with no one. Yet this same Jesus came into the world a baby. Can you believe that? Of all things, a baby. This is not the way you would expect the defender of Israel, the champion of righteousness, to make his first fleshly appearance on the world stage. But the Almighty became weak. The self-existent one who needs nothing from anybody became dependent on the nurturing of an inexperienced teenage peasant barely old enough to babysit. The king of angels became defenseless, exposed to this cold, cruel, calloused world. Alfred Edersheim writes, It seems so strange that on such a slender thread as the feeble throb of an infant life, the salvation of the world should hang. And no special care to watch over its safety. No better shelter be provided it than a stable. No other cradle than a manger. Messiah was laid in a feed trough. Listen to this poem by Lucy Shaw. <clears throat> it's written from Mary's eyes as she cuddles the newborn king. She writes, Blue homespun and the bend of my breast Keeps warm this small, hot, naked star fallen to my arms. Rest, you who have so far to come. 
Now nearness satisfies the body of God sweetly. Quiet he lies, whose vigor hurled a universe. He sleeps, whose eyelids have not closed before. His breath, so slight it seems no breath at all, once ruffled the dark deeps to sprout a world. Charmed by doves' voices, the whisper of straw, he dreams, hearing no music from his other spheres. Breath, mouth, ears, eyes. He is curtailed, who overflowed all skies all years, older than eternity. Now he is new, now native to earth as I am, nailed to my poor planet, caught that I might be free, blind in my womb to know my darkness ended, brought to this birth for me to be newborn and for him to see me mended. I must see him torn. Mary cuddled the infinite infant. He had come so far to be so vulnerable. And here's what I want you to see today. It's only against the backdrop of his preexistence that we can appreciate Jesus' incarnation, his coming in the flesh. As G.K. Chesterton once put it, the incarnation added courage to the virtues of the Creator. The King of Holiness braved the dangers of this fallen planet. When Jesus was born, He swapped riches for poverty, glory for scorn, respect for obscurity, honor for humiliation, praise for pain, heaven for a stable. He left the warmth and security of God's heavenly throne to live in a harsh and wicked down here. The invincible became vulnerable. The judge came to be judged. The king came to serve. Angels were at his beck and call, waiting on him day and night. He left it all and came to be a servant. Author Oswald Chambers puts it, The life of Jesus is the highest and holiest entering in at the lowliest door. His majesty was laid in a mangy manger. Philippians 2 verses 7 and 8 says it best. Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Understand that when Jesus became a man, he didn't stop being God. He never abandoned his divine attributes. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus frequently demonstrates his divine knowledge and power. Yet though he maintained his attributes, he limited their use. He refused to employ them to make his way easier or his load lighter. In taking on human flesh, Jesus became subject to the same pain and weakness and temptations and weariness that you feel and that I feel. Messiah laid aside the perks and privileges of deity to taste our experience, to even tangle with our enemies. And here is the million dollar question. Why in the world did he do it? If all Jesus wanted was luxury and ease and worship and gratitude, he would have hung out in heaven. But what Jesus wanted most 
was to win our love. The angel of the Lord was feared and reverenced. The commander of the Lord's army was respected and obeyed. The king of heaven was worshipped and praised. But our Lord Jesus wanted to be loved. So Jesus laid aside his power, his clout. And he made himself vulnerable. He became a baby. Think of it this way. Jesus was tired of intimidating. He now wanted to entice. The Messiah wanted to communicate his heart, not just herald his judgment. Here is the reason Jesus came to earth. He not only wanted to be feared, he also wanted to be followed. You see, to capture our hearts, he became vulnerable to our hurts. Is there someone you love? A spouse who's grown distant? A teenager who's become angry? A friend who's estranged? Someone you really love and you would like for them to love you. Instead, you don't even speak anymore. No matter how hard you try, you just can't seem to break through to them anymore. Here's a possible problem. Are you too busy demanding respect to earn their respect? Be honest. For a few minutes this morning, be objective. Do you try to intimidate or manipulate the person you love into agreeing with you? Or do you take an interest in their needs? Do you seek to persuade them to listen to what you have to say by proving to them your love first? Are you demanding that everyone see the problem through your eyes? Or are you willing to see it through their eyes? Are you too invincible to become vulnerable? Is this why people fear you, but they don't follow you? See, Christmas is a lesson on relationships. To reach us, the Almighty stopped throwing His weight around, and He became a seven-pounder. No one bristles up at a baby. God knew that babies disarm us. Babies attract us. We all want to coo over a baby. A baby draws our attention. Vulnerability is irresistible. And here is the genius of the incarnation. The way you break down walls, the way you win people's hearts, is by stooping down to their level. Stepping into their shoes, showing them love that they don't deserve. Think of the person with whom you're at odds. Have you considered that their perspective might have some merit? Why don't you humble yourself? Why do you always need to be right? Hey, you might be right, but friend, you can become so right that you become wrong. What's more important to you, to always be right? Or to build a bridge. So what if you win the argument and lose the person? Our Lord was always right. But never in a haughty way. Never in a distant, arrogant, I told you so kind of way. Jesus was always right. But he made you believe he understood your feelings. And that he was on your side. 
Jesus might have disagreed with people, but they always knew he cared. Our Lord never once folded his arms across his chest and said, All right, then have it your way. I'm right and one day we'll see. He never did that. Rather than drawing lines in the sand, Jesus picked up a cross. And even on the cross, he reached and reached and reached to a convicted thief. To the very people who had crucified him, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus continued to love to the very end. It's ironic, but most of us concentrate on immunizing ourselves from other people's hurts. Rather than become vulnerable, we are experts at building walls, at closing ourselves off emotionally to the hurts around us. We keep those who need us most at arm's length. And thus, this is why we come across to people as self-righteous and intimidating rather than Christ-like. The goal of the Christian life, friend, is not to become invincible, but to become vulnerable. Jesus could have remained on his perch in heaven, on his throne, and watched our plight from a distance as we sunk further and further into our sin. He didn't have to take a risk. He could have played it safe. The Son of God could have stayed cozy and comfortable in heaven. He didn't have to expose himself to pain here on this earth, but he did it. As Philippians 2 tells us, Jesus was God. Yet he laid aside his reputation. His highness got low. He identified with our plight. Jesus won our love, not by insisting on us bowing to him, but by him serving us. Jesus left majesty for the manger, the throne, for the trough. And we are his followers as a result. We now love our Lord Jesus because he became vulnerable to us. Jesus found what he was looking for in the manger. He found love. Not just the love of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, but my love and your love. And you too will find love when you descend into the manger. When you care enough about others to serve them. Then you'll bridge the gap with those you really want to reach. When you serve, you'll earn their love. And you'll sense the Lord's love in ways you've never known before. There is love in the manger. And there is room in the manger. Oh, Bethlehem hotels, they were crowded that first Christmas. The place that Jesus was born was the place no one else wanted. And that's still the case 2,000 years later. Everyone is crawling and clawing their way up the ladder. Only a few people are seeking the low place. We all have a choice. We can fight and climb and scratch. Or we can humbly stoop and join the Messiah in the manger. Hey, there's love in that manger and there is room in that manger. And here's my question for you. Are you in that manger?